Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're just getting ourselves started for the episode this morning of Talking Ozpol. Just waiting for... Uh, we've got Anger and Hope joining us already, and we're just waiting for the co-host, uh, Barry, to come on. Anger, how has your week been? Oh, fairly decent. Um We've had a huge amount of uh, dander in the air down here in Tasmania, so I've spent most of it uh, turning my house into a bubble of lack of dust. Um, it's, I've been sneezing hugely for half the week, unfortunately. Ah, did, so did, well, you had a, a huge amount of what in the air, did you say? Oh, dander. Sorry, I lived in the UK, and that's one of the British terms for it, like pollen. Oh, Paul, I thought yeah. I thought you said dander, and I kept, I kept listening. I thought I'll become clear. I thought, not nope, got to go back to that. <laughs> I haven't, haven't heard that expression, but that expression before. Oh, that's not a that's not a particularly good way to to bring in the new year. But if you're getting it sorted, that's uh, that's good to hear. What about it just you? Means that I'm not going outside, which is fine. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, look, fair, fair enough. So long as you got a solution. What about you, Barry? How's your week been? Oh look, um, not too bad. And good morning to everyone. Um, yeah, good morning. I've been, I've been chilling. I've just been, I've been all right. I've been perfectly okay. <laughs> Nothing to comment on particularly. Oh, good. Well, it sounds like it's been a fairly straightforward start to the year for for everyone. Twenty three. Gosh, no, I do remember when uh, the year two thousand was coming around, and it just seemed to be uh, see, seemed to be something that was so far in the future. Yeah, the, um, I don't the remember that TV show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you, you wouldn't really quite have that memory, but that memory, Barry. But uh, yeah, no. it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's sort of uh, well, I suppose it dates me a bit. But anyway, you can, you are the uh, the age that you are. So let's How get the start of your uh, year. I did. Yeah, look, it was it it, it was good. Went up to uh, Sydney for Christmas and saw uh, family up there, and then had a couple of family members come come down for a nice relaxed visit for a few days, and got to cook up a nice uh, rib roast, which I like doing in the uh, the, the the Weber and some uh, some roast chicken and salad, and so yeah, did had had a good uh, had a few good feeds and. Uh, a bit to drink so it was it was a good way to see in the new year now yeah, brilliant yeah yeah exactly well look, let's get into it uh good morning i'm ardit and welcome to talking ozpol the official podcast of the australian politics subreddit it's the 8th of january 2023 and today logan berry and myself are joined by anger and hope uh, we've got a lot of topics today, and if we don't get through them all, we'll likely talk about them on next week's show. We'll be talking about the impact of millennial voters on Australian politics. Will Labor reverse their decision on the Stage 3 tax cuts? Are Queensland's new penalties for young offenders too tough? Uh, mandatory COVID tests for travellers from China? Labor to impose quotas on streamed content? And we're going to round it out with a few... Uh, predictions from each of us for 2023 they can be political or otherwise but just fun to sort of speculate a little bit on what might be uh, coming up but look our first topic is the impact of millennial voters on australian politics uh let's start with you barry seeing as you're uh you're the youngest not, here, I'm, <laughs> I'm the youngest uh, not are you a millennial, millennial though 
No, no, no. I am definitely a Gen Z. So I believe Millennial goes to about uh, 90, I think it goes to 99. Um, yeah, I did... I'm not sure. There's a lot of different definitions. It's, there is. Uh, I... There, you know, it's not a set in stone thing, but I, I am uh, well and truly Gen Z. Uh, my older brother and sister are millennials. That's I'm, I'm definitely not. I think that's the one thing going in this topic a lot of people have to realize is that a lot of millennials are like the oldest are what, the late 40s? The youngest uh, early 40s. Mid, so yeah, 1980. Sorry, sorry, early 40s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the uh, the the youngest uh, is probably yeah probably like my my oldest brother who's about twenty five, um, I don't know his age but it's close, and it's look it's an interesting topic and of course we've had I think you guys have known going back throughout all time it's young people vote progressive and it's young people vote progressive but I think there is a certainly interesting looking at the data at least in Australia and it does seem like it's a trend. Uh, in our kind of peer countries and our developed countries where millennials are, despite the fact that they're aging, are still voting more progressive. There are a lot it's of reasons even, for this. It's not even that they're voting more progressive. It, uh, they're still voting progressive. They're becoming more progressive as time goes on, uh, which was the interesting thing that I took out of the um, data that's been going around. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's such a, a weird thing to talk about because, of course, you have baby boomers and you have... Gen X and and look, we would probably you could probably argue and look at the data that Gen X is probably still more progressive than baby boomers. So it is a trend um, going down. I think there are a lot of people just take it as oh, you vote more conservative as you get older. I think that's a very poor way of looking at it. There are a lot of different things you can look at. I mean, a lot of the time, it's not so much that you vote more conservative as you get older. It's that your politics, like politics, just changes. You, you might be a progressive when you're younger. And it's not necessarily that you lost any of those progressive ideals you had. It's just that progressivism has become more progressive than you ever thought, making you a conservative. It's that shifting of the Overton window. So it's been really interesting to see. Um, for the Australian electorate, I noticed uh, the there's an article, recent article in the Sydney Morning Herald by the leader of the Young Liberals talking about how he is <laughs> not enjoying this um this trend and he doesn't believe that the <laughs> liberal party is is doing enough to attract young voters um what could possibly seeking... give him that impression <laughs> yeah <laughs> well maybe <laughs> they're losing elections um <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to see the impact on the australian voting bloc of course baby boomers have been the biggest voting bloc for a long long while now and as that kind of the progressive stay progressive or as Anger said, get even more progressive. It's going to be interesting to how that shifts to maybe, uh, I'm going to say hopefully, more Labor Greens governance from my perspective. Um, mm. So it, I don't know. It's just, it's cool. It's cool to see. I, I think the millennials are definitely bucking a trend, although, you know, we've only had proper political polling since like the 1920s. So we can't really say this is historically massive thing but since then it, it definitely seems like each generation was getting more conservative as they're older and now millennials aren't and it's it's cool to see in my opinion good yeah, for it's me just interesting interesting the the one point i just wanted to clarify you made the the, the comment about them uh being progressive but then as they change they're still progressive but i think the phrase would use something like the progressive had got more progressive do you think it's that the uh that the progressive side has moved more to 
the left or that it's actually a perception and it hasn't moved as much so it's a do you think it's a psychological overton window or do you think it's a a, a real political overton window i think it's almost a kind of a conjoin of the two i mean the overton window you know isn't this very specific tangible thing mm. um i would i would say it's more of a, a real thing than than you realize of course you look at someone in the 60s that was fighting for say um the end of segregation in the US, but and and in those times they'd be seen as a very progressive person. But nowadays they might be, while still pro anti, still anti segregation, um, they might have some other views that a lot of progressive these days would look at and go, "Oh, that's that's bad, <laughs> that's bad." But back in their time, they're progressive. It's not necessarily that they've gotten more conservative. It's just that society has progressed beyond them, and I think that mm. that Overton window is is a really is a, is a real thing you can see it's not you know it's not this yep. tangible um action i guess but it's it's there and yeah, look an i agree with that go, go for it Enga. it's an interesting point that you raise um uh about the overton window because you could make the argument that especially uh in the us but here as well um things like uh um uh gay marriage and uh um, uh, abortion rights for women uh, and these other kind of conservative ideals uh, have been uh, pushed the Overton window slightly more right wing um, in terms of uh, how much uh, money and influence like, is going towards them in politics. So you could almost say that uh, millennials aren't necessarily getting significantly more left wing but that the major right-wing parties in some of these uh, countries are moving further to the right and away from millennials themselves, um, which is an interesting point, which I hadn't really thought about. Um, but yeah, in terms of uh, the impact of millennial voters, um, I assume you both know the phrase, it's the economy, stupid? Yeah, I know that one. Yeah, so that was from Bill Clinton's campaign in, I think, 1992. Yep. And in Australia, um, I had a look very briefly before this at the um, uh, Bureau of Statistics data from the last, um, uh, oh God, what's it called, thing that we did last year. Where they count all the things, what's the name? The, the census, election? you mean? The census, the census. there we go, thank census, you. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's early, my coffee's still kicking in. And um, home ownership was something which uh, I found very, very interesting because uh, there was a census uh, as well in 1991 when boomers were around the same age that millennials are now, roughly. Um, and the amount of renters uh, in the millennial cohort has doubled. Um, but on top of that, uh, millennials that own their homes, and it is about 55% of millennials who own their homes, a significant majority of them have mortgages. Uh, so I think it was like 80 or 90% of millennials who own homes have mortgages, whereas for the boomers at the same time, um, it was only around about 60 uh, or so percent. Uh, so mm. as much as we kind of like talk about like home ownership is a big thing, it's like, yes, but what kind of home ownership? And um, watching all the boomers say, oh, yes, but 
interest rates were so much higher. It's like there's a big difference between having an interest rate on a house that costs ninety thousand dollars of seventeen percent, and interest rate of three or four percent on a house that costs a million dollars. Well, look, that's that's true. That's true. And there's the uh, there was an article I was reading in the, the the Guardian, and there was three things that they're talking about, which are all co-related and come back to what you're saying. That three big concerns were insecure work housing mm-hmm. affordability, and climate change. And um, climate change is sort of aside from what you're saying at the moment. But that insecurity about about work, uh, the way that wages have really not risen in the way that they used to in line with productivity since about, um, I think it was when we went off the gold stand, when... Uh, since yeah, neoliberalism the started. <laughs> yeah, well, well, essentially, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. So uh, whilst there have been incremental rises that's another sort of uh, worry and source of anxiety for for people that is an argument against that thing of the boomers saying well we had higher interest rates in our time if you had a bit more of a feeling that your wages were keeping pace with inflation it changes your mindset even if it's not a hundred percent keeping uh pace with inflation and therefore keeping pace with increased interest rates, it still does uh, have have a positive effect. Whereas if you're seeing interest rates move way ahead of your rate of payment increase and uh, your ability to pay for it and you're you're also not sure about your your job, uh, that's a terrible mindset to be in. Absolutely. And that was another thing which the ABS data showed, like millennials are in general more employed than boomers uh, at the same time, 10 years previously. Uh, But the rate of um, uh, not insecure work, but part time work compared to full time uh, has massively increased. Uh, So it looks like, like there are more people in the workforce, but they are working less. uh, than they were previously. So that does kind of put a huge amount of people in uh, rental stress, for example. Yeah, look, I'd agree. And the, the other the other part of this is that it's, uh, look, cl- climate change, as we've discussed on previous episodes of Talking Ozpol, has been a, a feature of multiple political parties' policy and platforms. And it's something that does uh, weigh heavily on the psyche of a lot of people millennials included so we also have here a problem for labor as they have to deliver Mm. on all those three areas the security of work the affordability of housing and actual action on climate change Uh, and i don't think oh sorry go on i was going to say personally i like the pressure on the two pages I, i like seeing both of them squirm but the thing is i don't think that either of the major two parties are capable of acting on housing prices. Um, Because as long as they are still trying to keep, um, or as long as they're trying to not devalue the cost of housing, um, all they're doing is throwing more money at the problem, which is gonna make it easier for people who are just on the verge of being able to go into the housing market. Um, It'll make them be able to go in a little bit faster. Um, But first of all, they will be having mortgages for an incredibly long time um, because housing prices are where they are and throwing more money into it is just going to inflate prices more. Uh, So Labor's uh, policy of building more houses 
is, I mean, it's almost like the Liberal Party's, uh, you know, having more announcements. Um, mm. It's not <laughs> actually going to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'd, I'd agree with you. I'd agree with you on that. Uh, it's 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 a good show, but uh, you'd you'd really have to. And I know I know the uh, the, the Greens are in favour of, of more housing being built, but uh, you'd really have to be you know, 10 times what they're proposing to build before you actually put a real dent in it. Mm. But this is, um, and coming back to what you're talking about, climate change. Um, uh, so I I put together the election night footage from both the Victorian election and the federal election. And there's an, a wonderful bit in the federal election where Matt Canavan is kind of bemoaning the fact that they did sign up to net zero and people still don't um, believe them and vote for them on climate change. And I kind of, I almost felt sorry for him. He was like, well, what do we do? Uh, <laughs> and the problem is that the Liberal Party and the National Party um, just have absolutely no believability when it comes to dealing with climate. Uh, and I genuinely don't think they can do anything about that. Um, I think that they have just utterly lost that argument with the millennials and the Zoomers. And so anyone who is actually concerned about climate change, which is now a large portion of the electorate, um, they're just not going to vote for the coalition. Yeah, I, look, I think that's I think that's a fair point. There, it's it's very, it's very low credibility, and personally, I think they've only got themselves to blame. But talking about tests of credibility, our second topic will Labor reverse their decision on the stage three. Uh, tax cuts. Uh, for me, a Labor essentially serves the same people as the, the Libs when you get behind the, the curtain. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they treat the tax cuts this year forward. Uh, yeah, the Greens, I, I did like a comment from uh, Acting Greens leader Larissa Waters. She used the phrase, Labor's unfair and irresponsible stage three tax cuts. I thought that was very good pressure branding. I thought taking it from, oh, look, they're just doing the Morrison ones to giving them ownership of it. I thought that was, I thought that was great leverage. Uh, what, what do you think about the, we'll start with you again, um, Barry, just as we, we heard from Anger then. What do you think about Labor? Will they reverse their decision on the stage three tax cuts? Um. No, I don't think so. I mean, there are. I think um, a few months ago we we might have been ifing and aring, but uh, what they're coming in July first, I believe. Of course, economic near. What am I thinking? Um, I just wanted to quickly go back to some of the stuff we were talking about before in regards to the economy, just to bring up a point that in a lot of the Reddit threads that were about the millennial issue, um, there was that constant phrase of. You're not going to become conservative if you have nothing to conserve. And I think that was kind of the underlying sentiment behind a lot of uh, yours, Ardeet and Angus discussion just there around house pricing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I always, I always thought that's a, it's a very useful phrase to use um, when talking about the millennial voter issue. As for the stage three um, cuts, tax cuts, it's a bit of a... I don't know how well those sound effects came across, but that for me was a swing and a miss um, for Labor <laughs> and it's the first real one. <laughs> I felt, um, despite my, my terrible sound effects, um, yeah, for, for me, this this the the first real swing and a miss for, for me with Labor. Yep. Um, is it going to come in? I think, yeah, you're, you're too close now, surely. I mean, what, uh, six, uh, it is six months. 
Well, maybe. <laughs> we'll see, though. Look, that's a fair time. I it, it, things can change, and if they get the if they really get the the, the pressure put on them, um, which is why I was sort of it, it gave me a bit of a smile hearing that Larissa Waters uh, framing on that. What do you what do you reckon about the tax cuts, Angus? Anger uh, uh, Eng, and hope. <laughs> um, yeah, spoiler alert. My name is actually Angus. Uh, so, Sorry, I, as it was coming no, out, I fine. thought, oh my God, I've used it. So. <laughs> Taylor? Uh, so, not, not, my, not my local representative, Angus Taylor, I hope no, not. No, 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 no. He brings shame upon the name of Angus. Uh, oh, thank you. No, so I'm thinking about it politically. Uh, the If you can, and this is kind of a false equivalence, but if you uh, suggest, okay, Anyone who is likely to vote Green is absolutely against these tax cuts, and anyone who is likely to vote Liberal is for these tax cuts. Labor is in a really worrying position because they've only got 77 seats in the House, which is a majority and the Speaker barely. Um, like They can't really afford to lose any seats because of that. Um, they're within 3% of losing two seats from the Greens, and they're within 3% of losing seven seats from the Liberals. So which are they more worried about? Um, and I get the feeling that they are currently more worried about losing seats to the Liberal Party, because if they do lose seven seats, then that gives them an unworkable majority um, at the end of the yeah. day. Like, they, they could still kind of make it work. There's four Greens in the House. Um, I... And uh, there's a lot of independents who would probably be as much as all of them said, OK, we'd only talk to the Liberals about um, uh, kind of giving them supply and confidence if they get rid of Morrison. Well, Morrison's not the leader anymore, but they've replaced him with Dutton. So I don't think any of the independents really want to talk to him. Uh, so Labour could still kind of make it work, but they are so gun shy about the 2010-2013 um, uh, uh, parliament uh, when they didn't have a majority, that I think they are committing to the stage three tax cuts because they would be more okay with losing seats, losing possibly two seats to the Greens than possibly seven seats to the Liberals. Um, uh, with that in mind, interesting. Yep. as you said, Ardit, it's really easy for the Greens to attack them on this. So who knows? Well, and this yeah. is exactly what I want to see from the Greens. I want to add that in. While, while for me, it's a bit of a swing and a miss from Labor, um, this from the Greens is, is perfect for me. I want them to stop Labor from doing silly things. Um, and I like that the pressure they're putting on, yeah, Adit, you're right, that that framing around it, really pushing hard is, is great. Mm -hmm. um, and while I, I understand um, anger, that makes perfect sense. Like they, they should be more afraid of liberals and, and that kind of from the political sense, it's making me lean because I want labor to be as strong as possible, I guess. So I kind of, am, that makes me politically lean towards, Oh, maybe the state state tax cuts are terrible, but that's purely only in the political sense. I think in the actuality of it, they're, they're not going to be great. And I'm glad the greens are putting pressure and in an area that you expect the greens to put pressure on them for. You know, these are tax cuts for richer Australians. It'd be weird if they weren't. And it's well, interesting because the Labor Party, like they don't have a majority in the Senate and they are probably never again going to have a majority in the Senate. But what that means is that in the Senate, they can either work with the Greens or with the Liberals. Um, and the Liberals will back them up on a few things. And 
that kind of turns this into a really interesting, um, I guess, uh, issue because the Labour Party could end up passing some of their more progressive policies with the help of the Greens in the lower house and in the Senate, and then passing a lot more of their conservative policies with the Liberals. And so they could end up being both more progressive on some things and significantly more conservative on other things. Which is mm, interesting because that's, interesting. that's a un- unique, yeah, it's a, it's a unique position for Labor to be able to have support on either their left for their progressive policies or on their right for their conservative policies because you can't really do that in the coalition. There aren't, like, the, the Nationals are already part of the coalition. It's it's Labor's benefit for being the biggest party. Of course, the Liberals on their own aren't as big as Labor, um, seats-wise, and, of course, the Nationals aren't anywhere close. But for, for the coalition, their, their power comes from already being a coalition. They have nowhere on their right. Maybe one or two members they mm. can go to, like Kata. But in a lot of times, that's not going to be enough of the vote. It's, it's a really unique position for Labor to be in. And this is where they've got to play it off. Are they going to go the progressive route with the Greens and cut these taxes or cut these tax cuts? Um, mm. Or are they going to go to the more conservative side and, and use their, their liberal swing? And it's a very tight, it's a tight line for them to walk because if they end up going too far one way or the other, they're just going to hemorrhage votes to the other side. Um, like, I, I think we're all of the opinion that they are probably going to continue with the stage three tax cuts. And a result of that is they're going to lose votes to the Greens. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Look, I I, I, I love that uh, that observation about the the options it may actually give them yeah i suppose that is the other side of the the sword i, I mean it's a, it's a it's a cudgel that the greens are you know already wielding there was a a uh where are my notes there's a what is it the the economic inclusion committee which i believe david pocock uh got in, in Included, uh, which is examining the adequacy of uh, Australia's welfare payments. Now, the recommendations of those committees of that committee, those recommendations aren't binding on Labor. However, my understanding from what I read is that they are required to state why they would be rejecting any of the recommendations from that committee, and I think. That is going to be interesting to see how they they handle that because any uh, opposition to those recommendations immediately going to be met with okay, so you can give tax cuts to the rich, but you can't uh, increase even to a minor degree welfare welfare payments. I'm I'm looking forward to the results of that and seeing how they handle it. Yeah, it's it's hard for them to um cry poor and the economy is in such a bad condition. Uh, and we can't possibly do any of these things that would help the average Australian while also continuing with these tax cuts. I think they'll um, get rid of them in the next parliament. They'll take that in as um, uh, an election promise, but I think they'll keep them before then. Yeah, yeah. And look, we just had a comment there from Enoch. Actually, we had a comment there from Apricot Bar, who we all know and love, uh, who had, was just beaten to the punch by the uh, millennial vote. You can't be conservative if you have nothing to conserve. But we also had from uh, another regular listener, Enoch Isaac, who said, do stage three cuts affect donors or voters more? 
which uh, yeah, harkens back a little bit to me saying that Labor essentially serves the same people as the uh, the, the Libs. So, uh, And yeah, the entire thing of the Greens not taking uh, donations from major corporations means that uh, it's not in their interest the same way that it is in Labor and Liberal to continue them. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, look, let's get on to our uh, next topic is uh, Queensland's new penalties for young offenders too tough. God, this this one does my head in, does my heart in on this. I, I don't know what the answer to this is. It's very tough. I suspect it's going to be multiple answers rather than one single action. Yeah, it's understandable that people want action especially as these awful incidents also get hyped by media. However, it's also understandable that organisations like the Youth Affairs Network of Queensland see it as a knee-jerk reaction. I've got to say, I I don't know where to go with with this, and I don't know that I can judge anyone right or wrong on this. What, what, let's, let's start with you on this one, Inga. What do you reckon? It's a matter of taste. Um, the... Uh, as uh, was mentioned uh, in the Guardian article, and I know there's a few people on the subreddit who are like, well, it's the Guardian. Of course, they're going to take the left-wing point of view on this. Um, but there is uh, no data that backs up uh, having harsher penalties, especially for minors, um, yeah. does anything to reduce the crime rate. So the reason that we are pushing these harsher penalties is taste. Yeah. Like, we want to punish people. Um, for uh, doing some, to be fair, quite awful things, um, but we're making the problem worse later on. The problem is that no government is incentivized uh, to fix a problem, which is going to happen in three years or six years or nine years, um, as opposed to doing the thing that's going to get the votes right now. Yep. Yeah, spot on. What, what do you what do you think, Barry? What's you got, got any? Uh, how, what's your view of this one? Uh, look, not much else. I, I I completely agree in that it's a it's a factor of taste, and it's Anastasia Palaszczuk playing to the electorate at the moment. Um, you know, there's a lot of outcry around this. If she didn't do it, she was going to get lamented. Um, but Anger's right. It's it's just I don't believe, and and I don't think any of the data really backs up that this works, that this actually is preventative. And I'm also of the opinion that uh, I would rather our, our prison system set up to be for rehab- rehabilitation rather than punishment. Of course, punishment is always going to be a factor in it, and there is certain things that that should certainly be punished. Yep. And then, of course, the other factor of prison. Uh, for me, it, it comes down to rehabilitation, punishment, and protection, protection of the community by putting these people away but I, I always think that the focus should be on her rehabilitation and preventative measures i while i understand why this got done and i understand that a lot of people i would be angry i i understand the anger and i understand the motive for wanting this i don't think it's going to work just because we're really angry about something doesn't mean it's going to work and i would rather the energy be put into social programs and other such things from the organisations that are speaking out against this. I'm sure that they um, run of very many of them for, for preventative care rather than just chucking these kids in for, in prison for 10 years instead of five. 
Which means the pressure on this, like the reasoning behind it, um, as we said, kind of comes from pressure. And as Kevin Rudd has mentioned a couple of times, every single newspaper in Queensland is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Um, and one of the talking points, I think, of the Greens uh, in Queensland, which has been picked up by Labour uh, as well in Victoria, is that you don't have to worry about what the Telegraph or the Herald Sun say. Um, because no matter what you do, you're going to get attacked by them. So do the right thing. Uh, that's an interesting way to frame it. And it'd be a very interesting way to publicly frame it as well. I like that. Uh, I also think too, it's not, uh, I, I don't see how it has to be an either or thing. I think you can experiment with the the increased penalties but I think at the same time, as you were saying, Barry, you can also look at the different programs that are out there for rehabilitation, re-education. Uh, I think both things can be done at, at, at once. I, I, don't, I don't see why uh, it has to be, you know, here's the solution, everything else is, is wrong. I think you can meet, meet somewhere in the, the middle and at least, uh, at least try it. Uh, un unfortunately, we're sort of geared towards a leader coming out with his solution. Uh, everybody, you know, wiping their hands and saying, "Well, what's what's next?" and and moving on, rather than uh, a, a, a patience and a broadness of thinking. Well, the problem is as well that um, we know what the solutions are to these kinds of issues. Uh, there's been a huge amount of research done around the world about how to reduce the like i mean in the uk recently um youth crime rate went up when they closed all of um the uh youth halls and uh all of the community buildings as a result of austerity because kids didn't have anything else to do oh, youth crime okay. goes up more in poverty youth crime goes up more yep. when there's cycles of uh generational trauma like we know these things and we also know what we can do to mitigate them but it kind of comes down to that, well, no, we'd rather uh, deal with um, the symptoms rather than the problem because that's, I guess, more Old Testament thinking and that's the kind of mindset that we're in. Yeah, I, un unfortunately, I think, you're, I think you're correct. Look, I suppose talking about symptoms, uh, let's go on to our next topic, mandatory COVID tests for travellers from... Uh, China. But one of my favourite sayings of the, the decade, even though it's more of a social equation, I suppose, is science plus politics equals politics. And I, I think the COVID's really moved into, uh, well, a long time ago, moved into more ah. of a pol political question rather than a scientific question. So, but look, whether it matters from a scientific point of view, from a political point of view, it makes sense to put these restrictions on China. Australia's following nations, you know, like US, India, Italy, Japan, and Taiwan, and the communist, the Chinese Communist Party, they're, they're being secretive and they're being opaque about their handling of COVID. And I think there's justifiable doubt about the validity of any data coming out of uh, China. So look, while it's argument, arguable that it's shutting the laboratory door after the virus has bolted, it would be politically inept, in my opinion, not to at least put on a good show for the populace. What do you, what do you reckon, Barry? We'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I completely agree. I think uh, this this issue is is not about the 
the reality and, and the science. This this issue is about geopolitics. And I think if you think it's anything else, you're, you're kidding yourself a little. This is about showing China and about the tensions around China um, what, what we're willing to do. Um, scientifically, I don't know. <laughs> ask, I guess ask the um, head. Although, actually, I did see that uh, Bruce French, is that the head medical officer? Australia, my, or maybe I'm on. Uh, I don't know the bollocks. don't know the answer to that. I'll look it up. I saw. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention it because I can't. I can't quote it correctly. Um, but it, this this is an issue with you know it's a it's a political issue. Um, talking about China, whether or not we we should stop. Um, personally, I think sure. And of course, we do have the precedences of that. A lot of the other countries are doing it, as you mentioned. I don't see a particular issue with it. If it's going to raise tensions, it's going to raise tensions, but I guess everyone's raising tensions. I also um, agree that I am sceptical of a lot of the information coming out of China and of their willingness yeah. to share accurate data. So I'm, I'm happy for the Australian government to take a more cautious approach. And this seems like it's that, you know, we're not banning travel. We're just getting tests. We've done that for all other nations throughout this pandemic. And sure, we're a lot later into the pandemic now, and I don't, know if we're doing it for any other nations at the moment um but it makes sense right now yeah, so not to, having not to a my, my knowledge but yeah yeah that's interesting that both of you brought up the um fact that uh the ccp is relatively secretive about um what they see as internal problems like covid uh so are we <laughs> um oh, i'm not sure yeah. if you've looked into it but it is incredibly hard to find out how Australia is doing at the moment in regards to COVID, uh, what our numbers are, um, how many people are in the ICU at the moment, how many people are currently infected. Um, it's, I mean, this is one of those like, well, yeah, but very pot calling the kettle black. Um, one of my friends down here is immunocompromised. And so um, they keep a very, very close eye on everything. And I only knew that Australia is currently going through a really bad COVID wave when about a month ago they said, oh yeah, we're not going to go out anymore for a little while. Um, and kind of like showed me the reasons why. Um, in terms of uh, testing from China, yeah, yeah it's, oh, it's dumb. Oh, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so tired of... <laughs> Like, yes, but also <laughs> let's test from America because Jesus Christ, like they have um, a strain over there, which is quite worrying at the moment. And they also have low rates of um, uh, vaccination in various points and they're not requiring it. And uh, and when people are coming over here as well, like, yes, if we were actually, if we actually had COVID precautions, if you were required to mask up on public transport and at the gym, uh, and when shopping, something which I am doing because I don't want to get COVID again. Like I've had it once. It wasn't right. terrible, but the more often you get it, the worse the, the like long COVID symptoms can possibly get. Um, so if we were doing all of those things, then yes, absolutely, this would make sense. But uh, it's just another fucking boring knee-jerk reaction, <laughs> yeah. uh, which yeah. we are not, which we are only um applying to china because it plays well and yeah with what you're saying about you know um uh good science plus politics equals politics like kind of just equal good policy for once please yes. 
Uh, yep, <laughs> I can't argue. I can't argue with any of that. I'm, I'm yeah, I think that. um, I think I think Angus agreeing that this is very much a more a more political issue. I, I would say that um, if China wanted to, and this is rich coming for me because I'm don't think I'm ever going to China anytime soon. But I'm also okay if other countries want to do the same to us. Like I, I, I see it as a something that makes sense. Uh, but on the good politics and and good science, or not good politics, I guess. Uh, I had to refer back to my notes, but it's um, Paul Kelly. I don't know why I said Bruce French, but it's the chief medical officer, Paul Kelly. Uh, Just interestingly, he has actually advised against the mandatory COVID-19 testing. Um, So if you want to look at it from a purely scientific issue, there is one of our chief scientists and our chief medical officer saying that, "Mm, no, this isn't actually necessary. So... Mm. Yeah, that's fair. That's for anger to look at. <laughs> yeah. On a on a brief tangent, um, I I have to say that I think that the way the Chinese government has handled this current kind of like batch of COVID has been uniquely bad. <laughs> um, uh, because like they were really pushing the zero COVID, and that was not necessarily a bad idea. Like they were basically taking a risk on um, having your population being continually affected by COVID is going to be quite bad in the long term um, because of long COVID and all of these other things that uh, are going to prop up. It's going to kind of screw over both the health systems of countries that kind of like are dealing with this, or it's going to put a lot of strain on it. um, And it's going to put a lot of strain on the workforce. And we're not going to do that. And I get that. Like that's, that's not a bad idea, but they half-assed it um, because of internal pressure, which I understand. Uh, But then when they opened up, they didn't go the full hog of making sure that everyone was vaccinated and everything was fine. They were just like, okay, well, this is so unpopular that might bring our regime down. So we're just going to like run with it. Like, it, ah, they, they were, they were on the cusp of doing something like fine and then took the worst of both worlds. Yeah, look, you're up. And there's the, you, you'd made the, the comment before about uh, Australia and its secrecy. There was an article that I saw uh, this morning and my, um, I'm actually running this on a hotspot because my bloody internet is, is rubbish. So the iPads, <laughs> the iPads on, uh, on the very rubbishy Wi-Fi at the moment. So, but there was an article in the, uh, the ABC uh, I think it was within the last 24 hours talking about the secrecy of Australian, um, why Australian, Australian governments have kept much of their COVID research secret, why? And highlighting some of those things that you were talking about, anger, where data is not getting released or data is being difficult to obtain or it's like there's an obfuscation going on and the gist of the article was there doesn't seem to be any truly justifiable reason why Australia would be moving down this uh, this this route. But your comment that Australia is a little bit of a pot calling the kettle black with regards to the Chinese Communist Party, quite a valid comment. I saw that article a couple of days ago. It's it was very similar to um at the beginning of the pandemic trying to look at the British COVID details, um and I think uh, the only way we're actually going to see because no government wants to like look bad, 
Um, The uh, Liberals spent a huge amount of time before the Victorian election attacking Labour, saying there's been 801 deaths. Who's going to take the blame for that? While kind of ignoring the fact that their policies would have caused significantly more deaths and that there are currently significantly more deaths in Australia uh, due to COVID. But I don't like off the top of my head, I've got no idea what it is. Um, I don't think very many people do uh, because it's not in Labour's interest to really let everyone know what it is. Um, it's, I think it's only going to be when we start looking at the long-term trends of excess deaths um, uh, and also uh, as excess deaths kind of like go down, um, looking at what this has done to our life expectancy, uh, which yeah, yeah. I think will be pretty much universally bumped down a couple of years because of COVID. Yeah, look, I, I think that's a fair comment. So look, moving from creating stories, managing stories of one kind to managing stories of another, our second final, uh, sorry, our final topic before we get to our predictions for 2023 is Labor imposing uh, quotas on streamed content. I, yeah, To me, do quotas even work? Is this just lip service? And, and how do they expect to enforce this on streaming services like Netflix and Stan? I'm, I'm hearing a lot of fine-sounding words, uh, but I'm also seeing a precursor to a sticky mess of bureaucracy that, in my opinion, is going to lead to an increasing number of people either bypassing uh, these services with sophisticated download services or even avoid using services that become too complicated or, as we often see with these things, large corporations just simply finding loopholes depending on how they actually measure Australian content or Australian content in in quotes. So we'll start with you on this one, Barry. What's your opinion on this? Um, I do tend to, to disagree a little. I see um, mm-hmm. this as more of a kind of policy catching up with technology. There, there are these same sort of policies um, have been around on TV, on radio, on books for, for many, many decades. Um, and now we're seeing them kind of updating and, and upgrading to our, our more online um, culture and, and technology. Will they work? <laughs> <laughs> no clue. Probably not. No, not a hundred percent. Nothing ever does. Um, and I don't think that they're going to be meant to. I think if um, you know, uh, Tony is it Tony Burke? Yeah, Tony Burke, uh, the arts minister, goes into this thinking it's a hundred percent going to work. He, he's kidding himself. Yeah. But if it works a little, um, I, I'm very. I like to think I'm a very patriotic person, and anything in this sort of way that boosts Australian culture. Um, and and boost Australia in general, I, I'm very happy to see. So I, I'm quite happy with this policy. Um, is it going to work? That's the question. No clue. Not 100%, but hopefully yeah. it works a little. And hopefully it costs doesn't cost too much is the thing. It, it's only going to work a certain amount, and how much is that certain amount going to cost is, is the question. But I don't mind the idea and the motive behind it. Hmm. Fair enough. Anchor? So um, I will admit here to a certain amount of interest, uh, self-interest, um, as uh, I was working in the arts industry for a while. I've got a lot of friends who do uh, also. Um, the Conservative government fucked over the arts for the last 10 years. Um, right. 
if you can recall uh, when George Brandis was the Minister for the Arts, he kind of took a huge amount of funding away from the Arts Council and turned it into a personal slush fund so he could be like, I choose. Just as, as, as an aside, one of my most detested politicians, George Brandis, not, not just for things like that, but he was, to me, was a, a vain, dangerous man. I don't have... I, I don't like the person, but sorry, I thought I'd just I'd interrupt. Yeah, yeah, no worries. It's getting dirty. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he um, uh, the entire point of the Arts Council uh, is that uh, they didn't actually judge the merits of any applications that came in. They just kind of said, "Does this application fulfil all of the things that we need um, uh, to qualify for? We could possibly give it money." And then, if the answer for that was yes. They passed it on, <clears throat> excuse me, to a panel of experts in that particular field to then judge the merits. So it was kind of arm's length, arm's length funding. And George Brandis took a huge amount of money away from the Arts Council. Uh, so he could be like, no, I'm going to choose where this money is going and who this money is going to, uh, which is a very LMP kind of like thing to do. Yep. Uh, and there was a massive uproar. And so that money got taken away from him. So he couldn't do that. But it didn't go back to the Arts Council. Um, ah. So the Arts Council saw a huge um, drop in funding uh, over the 10 years or so that the LNP were in power, which is actually quite interesting because historically that wasn't the case. Historically, the LNP actually did more for the arts um, because they didn't want to do more for any of the other things that Labour wanted to do, whereas when Labour got in, they were like, well, instead of funding an orchestra, let's fund a bunch of public schools. Uh, mm. So like, it's kind of like switched a little bit there. But anyway, um, uh, now in terms of uh, Australia content, we're pretty good at that. Like um, our film industry is underfunded and it's small, but we produce a lot of absolutely fantastic um, pieces of writing and actors and directors. And of course, one of the problems is that a lot of our actors, when they make it big, they have to do it overseas because there just isn't the industry and the money here. Uh, so this policy, um, uh, which, uh, as you said, um, actually... Uh, is about trying for the Labour government not to spend a huge amount of money, but incentivize foreign companies to invest in making Australian content, um, which is, in general, a pretty good idea. Um, it can be done well. It can be done poorly. Um, and if it's done poorly, then you know nothing much will happen of it. But if it's done well, it will put more money into this industry, which is actually a pretty good industry in terms of um, the amount of quality that Australia produces. Uh, and also, it is important to reflect Australian stories uh, to people growing up. And I don't know what the statistics are, but a lot of people in Australia have Netflix. And Adi, you made the point that, you know, you can just use a VPN to get around all the Australian content. But also, if the Australian content is there, people are going to watch it. Well, look, maybe the two of you have, uh, well, maybe the two of you have probably changed my mind a little bit on that one. As, as loath as I am to uh, say anything positive about governments, uh, I, I, I take both your comments on board. I can, I, that's, a, that's a fair comment. Okay, I'm, I'm going to put myself down as a little bit of a, a mind having been changed here. So <laughs> well done to the two of you. All right, let's. Let's round out the uh, podcast today with predictions for 2023. I'll give you a couple from me. I think we are going to see a notable rise in the uh, in Dutton 
in how he is impacting on politics and just the, uh, the the figurehead that he becomes. Again, someone else I don't particularly like. However, just uh, putting those feelings aside, I was interested to see how he has handled uh, the, the swap over to becoming leader and from a distance, I think he's actually done it well. So I think we might see that bear uh, fruit. I think we'll see a bit more union action uh, this year, probably later in the the year after the, the budget, uh, particularly if Albo keeps uh, on a bit of a steady course and has uh, people feeling comfortable. And my final one is I think Perrottet will either lose the New South Wales uh, election or it'll be very uh, close with a, a notable reduction in their seats. They're my predictions. Let's start with let's start with you, Anger. What are your predictions for 2023, if you have any? So the biggest thing uh, democratically in 2023, of course, is the New South Wales state election. Um, although the Western Australia local elections are coming up as well, but mm. I don't really know a lot about that. So um, oh, in terms of New South Wales... I think that as much as the everyone's been talking about how the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party is um, more practical uh, than the Liberal Party elsewhere in the country, um, and New South Wales is in general more conservative than, say, Victoria, uh, they are going to lose. Um, it's going to be closer than um, a lot of other places, uh, but uh, they are... I'm pretty sure going to lose that election. I think the Teals might actually do decently in New South Wales um, because in Victoria, I, I think it was only, there were only a couple of Teal seats in Victoria, um, whereas yep. New, uh, Sydney, uh, Sydney Harbour is pretty much surrounded by Teal um, and it goes kind of all the way up to Palm Beach uh, as well on um, uh, the, north, the northern beaches. Uh, yep. And they almost... Like they got very close to winning a couple of other seats. So I think it's more likely that you're going to see a couple of Teal candidates uh, get over the line in uh, New South Wales. Um, I'm not sure whether or not the Greens will do any better on a local level. Uh, Sydney's just unfortunately not that kind of city, um, unfortunately for me. Uh, But, uh, yeah, it's um, Victoria, it was very obvious that the Liberals were going to lose but they lost even worse than they thought they were going to. Western Australia, again, it was obvious that they were going to lose, but again, it was even worse than they thought. Um, South Australia, Labour won, and Labour won winning seats that had previously been safe seats, like with more than 10% swings. Uh, And I think that even if that doesn't happen in New South Wales, it's going to still be enough of a swing to Labour, even if it's only 50-50 on a two-party preferred, that Labour's going to be able to form the next government. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Now, what about you, Barry? What you got any predictions for 2023? Yeah, I have a few. Um, first, I, I do want to say just quickly, very quickly, back to the um, back to the arts. I, I just wanted to point out, because we we're talking about Australia's um, movie. Uh, industry. I just want to point out for anyone that doesn't think that Bluey is our biggest cultural export of the last decade, <laughs> probably is I think smoking crack. Um, and I think there's a lot of power, and, and that kind of for me, 
that's one of the reasons I, I quite want to support the the local Australian entertainment industry is because there's a lot of power in having a generation of kids around the world. I don't think people appreciate how successful that show is growing up immersed in Australian culture and yeah. having positive um, kind of interpretations of Australia brought into their childhood. Uh, but onto the predictions, I think you guys have covered a lot of the political ones pretty well. Um, uh, Dom Parate. 50-50 for me. I'm definitely, I think we're all kind of on the edge. Anger, you're you're leaning a bit more to he's going to lose. I think you're leaning maybe a bit more to he might just win, but very barely. I'm, I'd say I'm dead middle. He's done better, better than I thought he would. At least he's more likable than I thought he would. And I think stuff like his... That's a surprise. Recently. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, For someone I, who's cosplaying as um, uh, yeah. Frollo from uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, oh. He is doing much better than I thought. I I don't believe him for a second, but he's doing it well. I can't like he's. he's I can't. I can't fault the bloke. Um, I can't fault the bloke. I, I mean, I can fault the bloke, but in terms of likability, he's doing well. So I, I'm almost leaning to a disappointment. And hey, look, if I get a disappointment after winning all the other states except Tasmania and the federal election, even if it's my home state. Oh well, that's that's the price we pay. Um, but I think it will, it's going to be close regardless. Um, but yeah, I don't really have any other political. A uh, Dutton, as as Ardeet brought up, I think I don't know if I, I'd go as far to say he he'll grow in power. I think he's going to be an effective um, opposition leader, or at least a, a, a well known one. He's going to be that kind of he's you know he's Tony Abbott stock. He's he's going to be an yeah. opposition leader. He's not going to be the opposition leader going into the next election if he is. It's purely because they have no one else and they think that somehow they're going to ram it through. I don't think he's ever going to be able to change his image to be more likable. Heck, he might even lose Dixon if he's too combative of an opposition leader. We know I mean, that that's quite close there. That's not a relatively a prediction for 2023, but um, yeah. I would actually say <laughs> that he's not unlikely to be the opposition leader for the next election um, mm. just because there's very few people within the Liberal Party who could stand up and be an effective opposition leader. Um, uh, my money would, uh, I think there might be a couple of younger guys who have only like relatively recently come into the parliament that they might be keen to go with when they get around to 2028, but they're way too green at the moment. Um, yeah, I think, uh, and that's the other thing. It, uh, if you look at the Liberal Party's um, like, why did we lose document that came out relatively recently? They haven't learned any lessons. Huh. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Look, my concern, in, uh, I would agree with your assessments of how Dutton could get there. My, uh, my concern would be if Dutton got there because his brand of politics and his personality had become popular and what that would mean as a reflection on the Australian culture. So I'm, I, if Dutton's there, I'm hoping it's just because that's the only choice they got. Because if it's the other one, we've got a lot of things to worry about. Very quickly, um, I think the last prediction that we should really talk about is the um, uh, voice to parliament. Uh, so oh, yes, yeah. The last time that uh, we talked about this, Ardeet, was with Apricot. And... Yep. Both you and Apricot were of the opinion that it wasn't going to pass. Uh, I predict that it will pass and that it will pass quite overwhelmingly. 
uh, so 60% or more. Um, uh, and I think that's a lot of Australians are kind of going to have this idea of, okay, yeah, it's vague, but also it's the right thing to do. And that's going to be enough to kind of like push it over. I don't think there's going to be a huge amount of people who are like, yeah, but what about our rights? What about this? What about that? I think it's good. Like the uh, plebiscite for gay marriage, I think it's going to go pretty overwhelmingly. And I think that's going to be good for the country. Like if it doesn't pass, um, I think that's kind of going to be bad in terms of like how we perceive ourselves. Yep. Yep. Look, I would, I, yeah, I would, I tend to agree with you on that because I, that's, that's a great, that's a great point. That's one of the, uh, that's going to be one of the significant ones coming up this, this year. So look, that's a, that is a good point. That uh, brings us to the end. Look, thank you for everybody who has asked questions and who has participated. Uh, just to, to clarify, as a number of these Reddit talks do, uh, we're happy to take take questions. Some talks invite people on. Some people, some talks uh, just have a simply one or two two guests. Some people do a, some talks do a mix of the both. For us here at Talking uh, Ozpol, we do invite questions in the chat, but because we are addressing a particular number of, of topics, the way we do it and that we choose to do it and are going to do it is to do it uh, this way. So look, thank you for all your 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 comments. Thank you, Imagination Machine, Enoch Isaac, uh, Apricot. And I want to thank both uh, you, Barry, uh, joining me again. And thank you for your input anger uh really really appreciate it it's good having you on and hopefully we'll get you on in the the future thank you for thank you me. my pleasure our pleasure look thank you everybody for joining in uh we will be back next sunday the 15th of january at 10 a.m australian eastern uh daylight time keep safe till then and we'll see everybody later see ya cheers i see ya bye